As we continue through Luke's gospel this morning, it's obvious that Luke opens the gospel with two extraordinary promises, one we have already covered and the other we are now approaching. And while it is, as he says in the introduction, it is his interest to provide certainty of historical record, that is, of the accounts that you're about to go through in Luke's gospel, he is concerned certainly with getting the history right so that you will have certainty regarding what you kind of have heard, what you've somewhat been discipled in, and yet you might remain a bit unstable in. Luke has written to Theophilus. As we said, we don't truly know who he was, but indeed all believers. A historical accounting of the work and person and ministry of Christ, but it is packed. Yes, historical, but it is packed with saving interest. You see, Luke wants to teach us at every pass through his gospel account something, yes, about the historical claim of God's promises and his work in time, but he wants to speak also to the nature of God's promises by explaining not simply the promises themselves. This is what took place. Again, that would be indeed adequate historically speaking. This is who was there, this is what was said, and this is what occurred. But beyond that, with that, but beyond it, he wants to instruct the church about something of the nature of God's promises. And he does so in each and every pass by explaining something of the people, the places, and the circumstances to whom the promises come. Again, we might think of the unfolding of the plan of redemption much greater and way beyond the bounds of human concern in the immediate. Who was there? What was the condition of the individual? Who heard that promise? How did it transpire? What condition were they in? We might more so think of, here's the promise, repent and receive, without or to the exclusion of the concerns of who was actually there. And by knowing who is there, learning something of how God is pleased to work, with whom does the Lord seek to show his mercy, to work his promises of salvation? What type of circumstance must one find themselves in in order to hear the mercy of God, in order to be used by God? Consider the first extraordinary announcement as we saw with John the Baptist. Consider Zechariah. Of course, he was there as he hears this tremendous announcement, and yet we learn something beyond just the announcement of John the Baptist was to come. But you recall we learned much about Zechariah himself, and by learning much of Zechariah, we learn much of ourselves. You recall Zechariah's response to the Word of God and the instruction to the people of God this morning about our response to the Word of God is one of faith not doubting. And you see the fatherly, gracious discipline that was given to Zechariah. As at this point in the narrative this morning, we know him still to be completely without able to, uh, completely unable to hear or to speak at this point within the narrative under the discipline of the Lord for his having doubted the certainty of the word that had come. Again, it's not simply the word of God came. Okay, it did. But note to whom and and how the individual responded. Because therein, within the narratives, we find ourselves. How we respond this morning to the word of God coming to us. The doubt that arises. The need for doubt to be put to death. And that 
faith must ascend and trust in the word of the Lord. Repent where we are in error and at odds with it. This is why we, he, we see Zechariah, not a polished picture of him, but the true and actual Zechariah, the ordinary priest himself. Here this morning we will see the same thing as we look at this text, not simply from the point of the promise being made, but what we learn about the promise coming to certain people in certain circumstances that teaches us about the nature of God's promises altogether. Let me give you my conclusion, and maybe I'll just repeat it a hundredfold. Certainly, if it's my conclusion now, I should probably repeat it when I'm concluding. But I'll give it to you now so that you can kind of take the conclusion. So by way of seeing Zechariah, narrative one, extraordinary announcement number one, extraordinary announcement number two, and then we're going to see the persons and place and circumstances within which the promise or the second ordinary word comes, extraordinary word comes, I want, you to give you the, I want to give you the conclusion, and then I want you to take that conclusion and put it back up and let the conclusion kind of work and filter its way down at every pass as we handle the narrative each and every move. Here's the conclusion. What is being revealed to us in this extraordinary announcement is humility. What is being revealed to us in this extraordinary announcement is humility. You see, the inordinate desire that each of us possesses in the flesh for status and stuff. Again, not saying status is terrible or stuff is terrible. Please hear carefully. The inordinate desire that we possess, each and every one of us, for status and stuff is herein in this text being struck down. Why? Why is it being so struck down? I'll show you how, but why? And and, and this, pause and think with me just for a moment. I know each of you to have this inordinate desire because I know each of you to be children of Adam. So we're all equal in that. And why is it so bad? What does it tell us about ourselves to have this desire, indeed that we fight by grace, try to resist and overcome in the power of the Spirit. But what does it tell us nonetheless about its impulse within each and every one of us? It tells us that we want to live our own life and have everything our own way. That's what it tells us. When we look and peer into the impulse of inordinate desire for status and stuff, it tells us we want everything our own way. That's why we want the stuff. That's why we want the status. We want everything within our controlled sphere to be the way we want it. However, in this text, that is confronted. Humility is the instruction of the text this morning. Seeing the humble people, places, and circumstances. This cannot be missed or skipped ahead. Please notice 
the people and places and circumstances that God used in the sending of his only begotten son for our salvation issues a call this morning to each and every one of us as we hear the word of God, the water wash over us, and as we come to his table. It issues a call for the mortification of our pride. We are reminded through this text as we gaze into the humble people, the humble places, the humble circumstances that God purposefully used in the accomplishment of our redemption. We are reminded that pride of place is a vicious sin. And that loving Christ that we would all confess this morning, I trust, is not without mortifying the pride of place that we desire or that we think ourselves to have or we're in efforts to achieve. Pride of place, we learn here in this text, is a vicious sin and loving Christ involves mortifying it. I want to make four observations in our time together out of this text Regarding God's purposeful use of humility and the accomplishing of his purposes, let me say that one more time. What we'll see in the text this morning, or how I'm going to go about it this morning, is making four observations that that you can kind of track with me through the text that will be, I think, quite evident as we walk through them. Four observations regarding God's purposeful use. That's critical in our hearing of the word this morning. God's purposeful use of humility in the accomplishing of his promises. The first of four observations that we need to make through the text this morning in seeing this truth of God's purposeful use of humility that our own pride might be struck down is the, is the humility of place. So from place and people and circumstance, consider number one, the humility of place. It's extraordinary when we think about it. What actually is taking place? God, creator God that we confessed this morning in the catechism. He who speaks light into darkness. He who speaks and out of nothing, something comes into being. Look at his condescension to us and how it then instructs us about how we seek to be in the proud place. Verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, just by way of notation, where we're progressing through the narrative is, as he says in the sixth month, if you look back up in verse 24 and 25, he's continuing the thought that Elizabeth heard, or or at least, well, maybe make sure we don't say heard, somehow was gestured to by Zechariah regarding what was occurring. Because in verse 24, as Zechariah leaves and he goes home in verse 23, he somehow gestures to Elizabeth, and then again, she conceives, and she was hidden as she received that for five months. 
Then in that fifth month, now we're moving from the five months of the chronology of the vision from Zechariah that Gabriel is on the move, making these glorious, extraordinary announcements that God is inbreaking human history to bring about his purposes of redemption. We pick up now in the sixth month of the sequence of events here. Verse 26 then. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. The first portion that we need to recognize about the humility of place is right off the bat, we need to grasp two things about Luke's mentioning of Nazareth. Notice in the text very carefully what he says about Nazareth. It is a city of Galilee. That's where Gabriel came, to a city of Galilee. In other words, he's noting two things about Nazareth. Because if he said, Gabriel came to Nazareth, you'd be like, ah, that makes sense, yes. But no, he says, he came to a city of Galilee. Uh, All right, okay. In other words, the first thing that we need to grasp about the humility of place is that Nazareth is a place that is nondescript. He didn't come to Manhattan, in other words. If I could say anachronistically, you do realize Manhattan wasn't around. But he didn't come there nonetheless. He came to Nazareth. And the notation is, simply put, no one knew really where Nazareth was. That is, outside a first century Palestinian reader, even at that time, the individual would not have precisely known where Nazareth was. He came, Gabriel, came to Nazareth. Mm, South or... In relationship to Jerusalem, oh, well, let me say, a city of Galilee. Oh, okay, yeah, I know where Galilee is. And even less than, he came to a small, nondescript village known as Nazareth. Secondly, the next notation right off the bat about the humility of place, it doesn't get more humble than even where God chooses to send his son for our salvation and how it instructs us in the mortification of our pride is that Nazareth is not even known. It is nondescript. Secondly, consider its reputation. It doesn't even have one really. Speaking, not many people even know where Nazareth is, but to those who do, turn over, if you will, from Matthew, Mark, Luke into John. Go to John chapter 1 and just consider the reputation to those who do know where Nazareth is located in its humble village, its humble place. Notice its reputation and again how it speaks to the humility that God is choosing to use purposely to instruct us about our own. Love of pride, lack of mortification, desire of place and pride, prominence. But look at the reputation of Nazareth. It's striking that the Lord would choose such humble places. Um, John 1, look at verse 43. The next next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. Whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Look at Nathanael's response. Verse 46, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
Now, this seems to be somewhat maybe an axiom or, 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 or a proverbial thought regarding the neighborhood. Those who did know it knew what it produced, largely very non-noble stock. And so when one is indeed looking for the Messiah, the king who is to come, the king who is to overthrow, the king who is to bring about his kingdom, that which we have waited for, we certainly are not looking for him in Nazareth. What good, if we look upon the scale of importance, who do we know alive today who came from Nazareth? This is the point of the humility of place. One author summarizes the thought of the humility of place, considering our Lord's birth, this way. If our sensibilities are shaped by this narrative, we will learn not to take ourselves too seriously. If our sensibilities are shaped by this narrative, we will be more self-critical. And if our sensibilities are at all shaped by this narrative, we will learn to see and be receptive to unexpected manifestations of God's love and His power. We will find it in the hidden places. This is what we learn about God's purposeful use. It isn't simply that He chose Nazareth because it's prominence. It clearly is not. It isn't because it's soaring reputation among men where princes and noblemen have been born. It is not. It strikingly is not. Nathaniel, who seemed to at least know of who came out of it thus far, are you kidding me? Nazareth? It's not him, don't worry. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Consider, secondly, the second observation of the mortification of our pride through the narrative of our Lord's birth is number two, to make the observation of the humility of the people involved. The humility of place, the humility of the people involved. Look at the text as we see, again, it's Joseph and Mary. Verse 27, Gabriel appears to a virgin that is one who is betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. So again, historically speaking, we're marking out, okay, so we're learning something of Joseph. We're learning something of who he is. He is, so far in the text, of the house of David. And the virgin's name, not only to Joseph, but the virgin's name here is Mary. Now, nothing stands out at this point now about Joseph. Joseph is of the historical note, which will come into play regarding the prophecy of the Lord's birth. He is, as you see there in the text, of the house of David. So in other, as we consider David's lineage stretching out across generations, David's lineage is considered a household. You know, it, it's good to belong. You are from noble stock, indeed from the king. You belong to the house of David. But that has more to do at this point with the claim of the prophecy that Christ is David's rightful heir, more than it has to do with the nobility of the man Joseph at this point. So we can kind of like not, we can kind of separate that out. In other words, Joseph has a claim in his family tree, but it doesn't make Joseph in and of himself at that point in history a man of nobility. It doesn't make him a who's who. Remember, 
there around about Nazareth. He's not in a king's palace. This is instructional as well, because all we simply know about Joseph, and then it's interesting and it's somewhat arguable going forward, he plays no prominent role in any of the gospel accounts. That too is striking. The text is largely silent as to why Joseph doesn't play a more prominent role. Perhaps we would think he would. Either way, he doesn't. There's some debate. Perhaps he had passed away prior to the crucifixion. We don't see him giving instruction. After the event, if you recall, after the event where Jesus is at the temple instructing and people are blown away and he's 12 years old, after that incident, largely we don't hear from Joseph again. He was a concerned father wondering where his son was. Other than that, we really don't have Joseph play a prominent role whatsoever. Again, silence as to why. Yet it speaks to the humility of Joseph himself in God's choosing. What do we know of Joseph that instructs us about, again, our own pride of place? We know this of Joseph. Joseph is young. He is a carpenter by trade. We learn this from other texts in the Gospels. We learn that Joseph, as they say, is this not the son of the carpenter, or is this not the carpenter's son, as it referred to Jesus himself. So we know from other texts within the Gospels, Joseph is, as best as we can tell, a carpenter by trade. Now, if, if we put this up too high, we would think, ah, oh, carpenter, he's probably doing pretty well for himself. You know, he's a young guy, strapping, perhaps strong, skilled in mind and hands, and he's, you know, an artesian of sorts. Mm, uh, less than that. He's not just a brute carpenter necessarily, but at the same scale, we need to keep in perspective what it means to be a carpenter or a man of trade at that point in time in the carpenter industry. Most likely, outside the biblical text, we learn that carpenters in the first century largely were marked by making rough um, uh, ox plows or, 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 or harnesses or what they call yokes for oxen team to pull harnesses, to be able to pull agricultural tools and so forth. Basically, he worked with his hands in the industry of wood. Now, could it be more than that? The term that we translate carpenter can mean more than that. The semantic range can broaden, but I wouldn't put him in the category of a fine cabinet maker at this point. What we recognize about Joseph as he is a young guy, he works with wood. He's skilled, certainly skilled at it. No reason to assume he isn't. He's known as a carpenter, so people go to him for business. He seems to get the job done and return it back to them. However, as the narrative continues, we do know something yet again striking about the humility that God would choose Joseph, even though belonging to the house of David for such a task, and that is, he doesn't make much money at it. He's not famous. He's not gloriously rich. Historically, just to add to the note of humility here, of what we know about the man Joseph, yes, indeed, he belongs to the house or the genealogy belonging to David, and that does play a significant role in prophetic truth to Christ's right to the Davidic throne. However, what we know about Joseph as a standalone man, historically speaking, Joseph is probably at this point in the text somewhere between the ages of 16 and 24. 
That's just kind of a historical aside to paint the picture of where is Joseph at in his life at this point in time. Most likely, he is somewhere between 16 and 24. And the reason for that is because Jewish young men at that time tried generally to get married within that stage of life. Somewhere around the note of 16, a man was looking to marry and be on his own and seeing not to pass, push it past if there was anything he could do. I imagine, you know, uh, he was doing his best at it through 16, 17, and 18, maybe a little awkward, left-footed, maybe perhaps, but he tried not to push it past 24. So somewhere within the realm of the ages of 16 to 24, Joseph is living his life somewhere in that, striking out on his own, trying to perform the work, the sustainable job of a carpenter. Historically speaking to Mary, on the other hand, who is Mary as we kind of come into the text now discussing who is Mary at this point? Because again, it's not just about the promise and the prophecy and fulfillment. Indeed, that is glorious. But God purposely chooses the people with whom he does those works, the places where he finds them, and the circumstances play a role. Mary also herself is somewhere probably around the age of 12 now, at this point in the text, she is, uh, as best as we could scale, somewhere as a teen, preteen, historically speaking. She is somewhere above or below the age of 13. The reason for this is because if you were to take the first century data and you were to put it together on an average of being committed to Mary, not as in committed to Mary, M-A-R-Y, as in being committed to Mary, as in marriage. How do you spell it? Mary. M-A, no, that makes you happy. M-A-R-R-Y? Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'm saying M-A-R-Y, no, that's her name. M-E-R-R-Y, no, that's Merry Christmas, no. Um, you get the idea. If you were to take then the average, y- you would put average first century betrothal, we'll just stick with the term being translated here. Um, it would be 12. There's no reason inside the biblical text to consider that Mary is clearly not in that average. So if we were to take the above and below, we'll put Mary somewhere at the teen, tween, 12 to 15. Joseph being 16 to 24. The point in making that note is, again, I press you and I together to think that we see in this text, according to God's purposes, that normal assumptions, and this is where it moves from 1st century to 21st century for you and I. We see here that normal assumptions on our part about people, about places, and about circumstances are often blind to the truth of the matter. Think of that as you consider others outside of yourself. The mode of operation of each one of us is to give ourselves a gracious benefit of the doubt. But when viewing others outside of ourselves, the criteria for such a benefit seems to be much more strict. So then, from that place of assumption we oftentimes are blinded to the truth of the person that we're interacting with. We're blinded to the possibility with this person we're interacting with. We're blinded to what is taking place around us and within the relationship to these people or persons. 
we're blinded to the truth, oftentimes, the truth of the matter. This would have indeed been the case had we looked at a 17-year-old young man marrying or engaged commitment level to a 14-year-old girl. Historically conditioned that statement because I am not arguing that that's something we need to like put forward at this point in time. Historically conditioned, if we jump into the first century, what would our assumptions have been of a young couple from Nazareth? Where? Uh, a city of Galilee. Oh, Nazareth. I'm with Nathan, or Nathaniel. Nothing good comes out of there. Oh, oh wait. Your assumptions are wrong. God is indeed pleased to work, and he purposes to work among a people of humility. Number three, the third observation. So we move along in the text from the places of humility that God chose to use in Nazareth and the bringing forth of his own son for our redemption and how it instructs us about our own place of pride each and every day as we are often upside down on the matter. We see it in the humility of the people involved, a young man named Joseph and a young girl named Mary. And then the third observation of humility from the text that is instructional for our own propensity toward pride of place is the humility of circumstances. I want to show you how this is the case. Again, I made mention a little bit of, historically speaking, what a carpenter did um, uh, and, and the rough-hewn work. Uh, with his hands, with the lumber, and what he was actually providing and the services that people went to him in order to perform. But I want to see a little bit, press a little bit further to see, again, how Joseph really didn't make any money. The humility of circumstance. Uh, I'm sure we've heard it spoken at, at, at kind of Christmas time about the humble origins of the Lord being born in a manger. But we need to keep that. Again, it's not just a historical fact, but it is instruction upon our own pride of place. We would think such a Savior to be born in a place of nobility, to be born in a place at least, not in a food trough. But again, we are often upside down on the matter. And God is doing such work to retrain our minds and hearts to be right side up on the matter and to toss off the assumptions that we often place upon what is going on, but to see what God is pleased to do in such people and circumstances, ourselves included. Look over at the birth narrative in Luke chapter 2, and maybe I'll even save some time by the time we preach this next year. In chapter 2, I'll be able to skip these verses because I'm giving them away now. But if you look over at what's taking place here to add to the humility of circumstance, it's not only, again, the place and the young couple, but even the circumstances that God who spoke something into nothing would choose to do redemption's work this way is instructional, not just historical. Look at verse 22 of chapter 2. And when the time for their purification according to the Lord, uh, and, and when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Now that little notation there, as it is written in the law of the Lord, you could go back to Leviticus 12 if you wanted to note that, and you could see the purification requirements for a woman who had just given birth. 
So, so there was actually instruction in the purification of the law for a woman who gave birth of the next steps of protocol to be restored to a place of cleanliness. Okay, so a lot transpires here in the law of what we're instructed about a, a woman's giving birth would be Leviticus 12. He's noting to you, again, for other theological purposes, that everything that was done in the life of Christ was according to the law. And that is not simply for his benefit, but for yours. So he wants you to know the lawfulness of what they're doing, but let's look at the circumstances of what's going on. Verse 23, as is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And here's the instruction. Now that you've anointed this child as holy or separate or offered absolutely unto the Lord, verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. Again, upholding the righteous standard of the law in the life of Christ. The next portion of what was required is this, a pair of turtle doves or, a young, or, or two young pigeons. Now, if you look at Leviticus 12, actually what was to be required was that they were, in this picture in, in Luke 2, Mary and Joseph, this young couple, was to bring a lamb as a burnt offering and a single pigeon for the sin offering in the cleanliness law of Leviticus 12. So why are they here then in this text seeming to bring unto the priest for the purpose of lawfulness a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons? Well, the answer is the humility of circumstance. In this particular case, Mary and Joseph didn't bring a lamb because they could not afford one. How do we know that is the case? Because, again, Leviticus 12. There is a permission that is allowable within the law for those who are of meager means or scarcity of resources graciousness and provisions of the law. And when we look at Leviticus 12 and we see there is a permission, there is that which is allowable that will achieve lawful status for the mother and the baby. And it is this way for those of means who can, and it is this for those who don't have means and cannot. And we see in the picture of Luke 2 what probably we're coming to expect about a young couple striking out on their own. They don't have the money to meet that lawful standard. So they meet the lawful standard of the gracious provisions of God of two turtle doves and two pigeons because they are a couple of scarcity of means. This clearly, in the humility of circumstance, speaks to the poverty of Joseph and Mary, to whom our Lord and Savior was born. You see, if we consider this text and we simply move on to the promise, indeed it's glorious, and we're going to get there, I promise, next week. Now better chill on my promises. If we skip forward and we unpack the extraordinary announcement, we might risk missing to whom it comes. 
We might so backwardly think if we skip what the Lord is doing purposefully and to whom he comes. And within the context that he so chooses to operate, we might think ourselves backward when we approach such promises. We might think ourselves as being able to lay claim to them based on the wrong assumptions. I don't know what they might be. Something of a pride of place something of, uh, of my pedigree academically from where I'm standing, the small business I've launched, the accomplishments that I have, the people who work for me. It ought to transfer right into my religious life. I'm who we all know I am, and therefore I lay claim to the Lord's table. I am who I am every other day of the week, so I lay claim to the grace of the Lord. I mean, look at me. And we see we are upside down on the matter. And the text is right side up. God's manner, in other words, God's manner of working, and th- this is from cover to cover, and, 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 and as you all are, are biblically literate, you know that this is from cover of leather to cover, cover of leather or, or hard cardboard, whichever covers you have, the pages in between. You know that at every pass, God's manner of working is in the hidden. Why would it be any different than with us? That it is his pattern to work in the hidden. After the pattern of great reversals, we think it should be this based on who we are, given the wrongful assumptions that we have, and he works in the reversal. Not once, maybe, maybe at best twice in the biblical text, but at every pass. He delights and purposely designs to accomplish his purposes through the work of surprise. But again, most often, we of the 21st century church repeatedly fail to understand this because our perspectives are rooted in arrogance. We might as well admit it and repent of it. We have the wrongful assumptions about ourselves and others, primarily speaking of ourselves. We don't see the circumstances the way they really are. We don't see the poverty of condition that we're really in. We might confess depravity, but we don't believe it about ourselves. We might think that every other heart, as Heidelberg says, doth continuously seek evil, but not ours. We read the biblical text thinking, I know the way my life needs to go, and God's not getting it right. We might look upon the text of Holy Scripture that is preached to wash over us, and we might say, how can I know that it's the way that you're saying it? God is pleased to purposefully work His great and extraordinary promises through ordinary people of humble place, of humble circumstance, that he might display his own power and receive all of the glory. So where we might like operate from false assumptions, we might be so conditioned by those things around us to think wrongly about a manner and God speaking, this is not the case with Mary. This is the fourth and final observation about the humility at work in this text that we must not skip for it speaks directly 
to our call, believers, this morning to mortify pride in our flesh. It is instructional to us in verse 37 and 38, and that is the fourth and final observation, the humility of a servant. Look at the humility of a servant. Verse 37 As it is spoken to her, and we'll get to the prophecy again, or the promise next week, but as it is spoken to her, look at how Gabriel ends the the, the word of, of, of extraordinary measure and vision. Look at what he says in verse 37. Uh, which indeed we must lay hold of, um, and Mary does. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, when when she asks questions like, you know, uh, how am I going to, how is this exactly going to go on? You know, I've I've never known a man, I've never, and questions of the basic practicality of how this is all going to work out. And Gabriel says to her, don't worry about all that. Nothing is impossible with God. As that is spoken to you this morning, facing a number of challenges, maybe there's some place you want to be. Maybe there's something you're working hard at attaining. And it's not wrong. It's not unlawful. It's not a chasing after yourself. It is simply things that are in your path that are there by providence and deeply challenging to you. The text says to everyone gazing upon it right now, the same creedal confession. Nothing is impossible to God. Now, look at the humility of a servant and that word washing over them. Look at the response in 38. Mary, upon hearing it, Again, even more than that, but the final proposition to the matter is that nothing is impossible with God. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is where faith operates, knowledge is revealed. Right now, the biblical text is being revealed to each of us. Knowledge is coming. There's an ascent where we say, that's true. And as I identify it as true, I, like Mary, trust in it. I don't simply hear it this morning and harden my own heart to it. I don't hear it and then disregard it. Faith, that mark of a humble servant, hears it, lays hold of it as true, and trusts upon it. I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. With the confession of Mary, we end our time, that she believed the Word of God without hesitation. Let me ask you two final questions this morning about the text. Number one, what does God's choice of the humility of a people the humility of a place and the humility of such circumstances 
say to you this morning about your propensity for power, place, prestige, and pedigree? Are you somebody? And therefore, it is hard for you to hear, repent, For only Christ, who is Lord, is somebody. Is it hard to hear the gospel because you're not as a servant of the Lord? It's hard to therefore say, let it be to me according to your word. Rather, it is, you're not getting it right. I need to take matters into my own hands. Are you right side up or upside down on humility and pride? The second question that I conclude with you to think on and meditate and take upon this text and further reading and thought and the mortification of pride as we come to the Lord's table is how does a servant's response such as, let it be to me, according to your word, shape your attitude towards God's will for your life. I conclude with this. What are you running away from? In thought of where you're running from, I ask, where are you running to? the question that lies there is are you running to Christ or are you justifying yourself based on wrong assumptions let these continue to be on our mind as we come to the table let's pray Father we thank you for your text of Holy Scripture we thank you for your revealing of your purposeful and providential design to use the humble to come to the lowly circumstance, the instructional value that is there for us to mortify our own pride, to recognize we're not somebody, but where we are weak, Lord, in confessing our weakness, owning our weakness, delighting in weakness, we see your power made perfect. We see that that is the place you delight to work that you rejoice over those who are humble and tremble at your word, correcting our wrongful assumptions, repenting of them, asking that you'd bring about in a myriad of ways humility into our lives, both of study, of finance, of relationship, of pride of place, of relying upon our merits that we think we have gained to lay claim to your table. We have nothing in our hands do we bring. Let it be not only our mind's confession academically, but let it be of our hearts that we confess nothing do we bring, but do we doth continuously break your law? Do we disregard what you have commanded us to obey? Moreover, we desire to do that which you have forbidden, and we do nothing of that which you require from the heart. Lord, be gracious to us. Cleanse our unrighteousness. Forgive us our iniquities and trespasses. Let our faith yet again be rinsed clean. Let it be strengthened. Let the word wash over us and cleanse us. Let your table 
feed our faith and let us be nourished as we repent of pride and the humility of a Christ who is broken on our behalf, came in poverty that we might be made rich. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I'm going to ask you to stand, worship team, if you want to make your way up here.